Hey folks, this is Terrell. The episode you're about to listen to will focus on Persona 5, and in it, we will discuss sexual assault, physical abuse, and psychological abuse as it appears within the game, and detailed discussions therein. If those are things that are triggering or otherwise discomforting for you, we advise you to take discretion before choosing to listen. Separately, a piece that we will discuss within the text, The Predator and the Jokester by Lauren Berlant, has a particular critical take concerning sexual assault and various protests within the Me Too movement. We will have a well-rounded discussion from all different angles on the Berlant piece, but for a more in-depth, close reading of the piece, please see the Scholars at Play blog. Thank you. Kyle, yeah. I am just so tired mm. after this semester. Yeah. I don't think I can host this one. Really? Yeah. I mean, I get that. Now, you look terrible. I feel terrible, but mostly I look terrible. Yeah, yeah. Now you've you've already done one, right? Yeah, it was a really good episode. How are yeah. <laughs> of co- of course? How are you feeling? Do you think you could take this one? I- I'm kind of tired too. I mean, you can see me. I'm basically a zombie. Yeah, you I don't... Just, a new challenger emerges. <laughs> oh my God, Terrell, can can you take this one? Ding, ding. Choose your fighter. Yes. Terrell selected. <laughs> Totally about it. Hello, and welcome to Scholars at Play, a podcast dedicated to the critical discussion of games and their place in society and the academy. As you already know, I am not Derek Price or Kyle Romero, but T. Rail Taylor. (laughs) Today I am joined by Derek Price. Hi, how's it going? Kyle Romero. Hello. And back by popular demand, Sabine Ahmed. Hey, everybody. The teleprompter says I need to say Kruzzi. Beautiful. So there you go. Yeah, For all our, all our Swiss German listeners. There's a lot of not following the podcast notes because you'll note after it says Derek Price's name, it says everybody booze. Boo. Yeah, but no one did that. Well, I'll just double that up a hundred times Good. and play yeah. it right after. Because that's like how we all feel. Yeah, exactly. When you introduce yourself. Right, right, right exactly. Everyone just feels <laughs> Kyle, like an angry mom. I'm in the cockpit right now. <laughs> that's and fair. where I'm going, very there are no roads. <laughs> fair. What are we doing today, Terrell? Today we'll be focused on the game Persona 5. Uh, we'll also have a discussion about some essays from Susan Sontag, mostly from her book Against Interpretation, thinking about form, content, interpretation, appearance, art, and theory. Uh, and yes, it will be a very quote-unquote campy discussion. However, we will be addressing some very serious issues of sexual assault and abuse and harassment uh, as they pertain to Persona 5 uh, and how we deal with seriousness within that. Uh, to that end, we'll also be looking at a piece from Lauren Berlant called The Predator and the Jokester. You can find that piece within the edited collection Where Freedom Starts, Sex, Power, and Violence, hashtag Me Too, that was produced in 2018 by the Verso publication. You can get that as a free PDF. It is This piece is also available uh, on the website New Inquiry as well. Cool. So, Persona 5. <laughs> Persona 5. What a game. What What a game. A game like no other, because it's called Persona 5. Persona 5 is the sixth game in the Persona series, uh, which goes back to 1996 with the first game, Megami Abanroku Persona, or Revelations Persona, and is also related to a much longer-running series called Shin Megami Tensei. 
Uh, Persona 5 was initially released in 2016 in Japan. Uh, Andrew Goldfarb on IGN has been playing it since then in the original <laughs> Japanese. So oh, he's oh, wow. played this several times over. Uh, there's just some diehard fans out there that have to get it when the immediately comes out. Uh, but the game originally released uh, globally in 2017 by the Atlas Company. So short description of the game, it's a role-playing game. And I think in the room we've got some different levels of familiarity with the JRPG uh, genre of games. Uh, and you play as a group of teams who call themselves the Phantom Thieves that can enter the metaverse, a world of shadow and desire that is layered on top of the real world. The game is very stylish and includes a lot of, you guessed it, role-playing uh, with real-world stuff like forming relationships with people, working, shopping, going to school, and other activities of the sort. Uh, one thing that's very important to note about this episode in particular, Persona 5 is long. Very long. Yep. Very, 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 very long. Um, and it includes a lot of sort of interplay between different types of gameplay, a lot of things that you have to sort of manage, et cetera, et cetera. We were able to probably each put somewhere close into 10 hours a game and get to the particular section of the game that we're going to talk about. And for those of you playing along at home, get it? Uh, <laughs> you want to think nice. probably towards the end of what we call the first palace or the first sort of dungeon of the game. It's Kamoshida's uh, palace. So that's a 13 maybe hour commitment or so. Yeah. Uh, and if you can't get all the way through, there's always the watching the sort of videos and see that sort of thing as well. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, I think it's, there's, the, the game is expansive. Like there's so much stuff. There's so many characters. There's a lot of issues that we're going to sort of maybe sidebar and just say like, right. hey, we didn't get to that. We can't really touch on it that much. But, but we did do a little research. We checked out some stuff that happens mm -hmm. later in the game as it's relevant to our discussion. Right. Uh, another piece of research that I did through the IGN wiki. Um, it's interesting that a game this big uh, doesn't have a print um, strategy guide. I think there's one that's available for purchase on um, Amazon that's like a PDF or an ebook. It has not the greatest ratings, uh, but the online sort of way of accessing sort of walkthroughs is actually the best way to go for this. And the most recommendations with that even say that to really get through the game requires several playthroughs, so using the New Game mm -hmm. Plus option. So this is a big commitment, and it will keep you busy for a very long time. So just a But it's pretty rewarding so yeah, far. I'd like, say so. I'll, yeah. I'll put my cards on the table. I was probably the least familiar with JRPGs. It's sure. just a, a genre that for no particular reason, it's just never been my thing. And so this was something that was kind of really my first JRPG I ever played. And it's amazing and fascinating and something I wanted to bring up about the game. For those eagle-eyed listeners, eagle-eared eagle listeners, hawk-eared listeners, um, <laughs> yeah, beautiful. you remember we talked a little bit, a teeny bit about Persona 5 in our Game of the Year episode. And this game did win, in fact, a lot of awards um, mm -hmm. at, at IGN and Kotaku. And um, a lot of people were talking about how this is the sixth game in the Persona series, but the first one to get major traction in the United States. Mm -hmm, you right. know, like mm -hmm. I think it sold millions of copies at this point. Um, and so that, I'm not entirely sure why. I'm sure there's has yeah. something to do with marketing, with like the strategy that they brought it in with. But mm -hmm. it is important to know that this game has gotten a huge amount of release and, and support in the United States as well as Japan, which is different from the previous Persona right. Mm -hmm. um, right. titles. Absolutely. And considering that this is a game that's only available for the PlayStation 5, I think it might also be available for PC, but it's not uh, available for the Xbox. Uh, and there's even been some consideration because uh, I think they sent out a poll in early February about other ways that fans of the game would like to play it. So I could very well see this being a game that would take off very well on something like the Switch, Give especially given the Switch. different levels. Yes, <laughs> Give I would this love to me on Switch. Desperately need it, just with all the hours, like yeah. downtime, being yeah. on the plane. Um, definitely. 
This would be the perfect like travel game. I would yeah. love it. Um, and just to sort of touch base um, real quick, because you know many of you will probably have heard the, uh, the sort of disclaimer that we had prior to the episode about some of the heavy themes going on there. Um, the thematic focus for this, um, the person in the cockpit kind of put the, the whole thing together and sort of laid the trajectory for us. Uh, really thinking about the way that this game, uh, whether intentionally or not, managed to sort of arrive quite on time in terms of the Me Too movement. You know, given that it was a 2017 release and then that sort of other things going on in the atmosphere. Despite the fact that it was originally released in 2016, the way that it happens to have that sort of global release along with the sort of global movement and thinking about how these things are even without having been situated together, are in conversation and what it is that we as players and others do with it. And besides intentionality, um, the success of what they're trying to do, yes. uh, that's going to be a big part of this discussion, whether they succeed in bringing awareness to these social issues, whether they fail, in which ways, in what ways do they do both? Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Let's let's tell the people what this dang game is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So... Um, Picking up on the sort of brief summary that um, we began with, the Persona series always deals with the um, the metaverse. And the metaverse is something of a kind of collected space of the subconscious, where um, when we think about palaces, we said that you know, the Kamashita's palace is what we're really kind of focusing on for this episode. Those are representations of the subconscious of real world people in the sort of real world space of the game. Um, and so the main protagonists within that space in this game this game they're called the sort of you know thieves of sorts they enter the palaces uh with respect to trying to do something within the subconscious of someone who's sort of yeah within the game space and yeah. the only people that have palaces are people with distorted desires right so like the people who are in some sort of power that have a distorted desire and the goal of the phantom thieves is to break into their palace, which is their kind of sub-unconscious, and to steal their treasure, which is kind of the source of their distorted desires that have warped their heart. It's literally their desire. Like, yeah. you are literally stealing their desire. So to set up, like, the specific, like, first palace, like, what the stakes are, the game opens with you as the, the main protagonist. You are a student, and you come across this man harassing and trying to get this woman into his car. Um, you know, she clearly doesn't want to go with him, and you push him, right? And he's like, you son of a bitch, I'm going to sue you or something like that. And then that sort of fast forwards to you get expelled from school and the game really opens with you moving to this new school with this reputation as like some sort of criminal uh, and no one trusts you. Everyone uh, thinks you're you know dangerous or something like that. Um, and that's when you sort of start getting introduced to uh, some of the main characters, the antagonists, at least in that first level. So the Kamoshida, who is the person we've mentioned before, uh, Kamoshida is the PE teacher at... Shujin? Shujin Academy. Shujin Academy. Shunjin? Shujin. Shujin Academy, which is the, the school you transfer to. And he's a former Olympic athlete, volleyball athlete, who has this big reputation. And the the, the this school this academy's uh, volleyball team is really well known because of him and his teach uh, his his coaching. As it unfolds over the first couple of hours of the game, it seems like there's a lot of abuse happening. And you sort of see him having some questionable interactions with um, one of the other main characters, on, and a, a couple of other characters throughout, both uh, boy and girl characters, although that relationship develops further as you go forward. And that's when you discover this metaverse and you have these powers to have these personas. And personas, uh, you know, the, the metaverse comes to... Uh, comes to your main character who you name, so there's no name for them. But uh, he was get... Rutabaga in the Rutabaga was the name <laughs> that I gave him. I don't know. Um, 
he gets this app on his phone and like this app sort of unlocks this new dimension for him and slowly him and, and a couple of the people uh uh so ryuji R- ryuji right ryuji um and uh they they meet up with another character morgana who or mona is the code name in the metaverse and that's sort of like where you get introduced to the metaverse and the metaverse is where the quote-unquote sort of battles and fighting and grinding all sort of plays out and since the metaverse is a reflection uh like a cognitive shadow of the real world if you improve your skills in the real world by like reading or going to batting cages Mm -hmm. or training and stuff like that it increases your combat abilities and your knowledge and your uh, charm and your proficiency and whatnot in the metaverse so that's where the rpg elements come into play so these are kind of your two world is you're improving yourself in the metaverse figuring out who your targets are what you're going to be doing or in the in the real world and then in the metaverse you use those skills to go fight people with magic and all that yeah you get it it's a video game yeah it's a video game and and the one cool thing that i like uh, i think kyle you told me this or maybe it was you terrell but like when i first started for the first couple of hours um the sort of real world stuff doesn't you, you're not it's not immediately clear how it impacts the quote-unquote fighty stuff the the gamey gamey bits um, and I thought they were actually going to remain separate, but the, and it turns out, and this is apparently a new feature for Persona Five, developing relationships with people in the real world, as you said, impacts your fight readiness and yeah. your bond levels, and you can do special moves because of that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, also there's ways that you get various forms of equipment. Um, that's actually one of the interesting things about this game as an RPG, and I know that each of us kind of have different sort of experience levels with RPG. I think Sabine, you've played a number of them as I well. Played a lot of JRPGs, yeah. Um, the thing that I think Derek found, Derek and I found a little bit um, strange is that small things like, you know, for example, there's a, a kind of unit that each of the characters have called SP, which is similar to sort of magic points or mana that you would see um, in another sort of RPGs, like what you use to use various abilities, skills, so on and so forth. But, you know, using them within the space of the metaverse means that you have a limited amount. And so how do you manage that? Um, and it takes a sort of finagling with the kind of in-game relationships to be able to unlock the things that will allow you to regenerate uh, those magic points within mm-hmm. the game space, which is a little different than just being able to go to the store and buy uh, ether or whatever. And that's really something that distinguishes a JRPG from a WRPG, right? A Western mm-hmm. RPG is this emphasis. So I would say three main qualities to a JRPG that are at play in this game is the emphasis on battle and the mechanics of battle. Mm-hmm. Second would be that it's a rather linear story, um, meaning your movements are in some way contoured, but also the sorts of interactions that you have with other characters is very curated, including the ways in which you can respond verbally to questions and scenarios. And three would be the emphasis on the actual characters. Mm-hmm. Right, So the personalities of your teammates is integral to both their persona, your interactions with them, and the way in which they do battle, everything is very interconnected. But those, I guess, those are the three things. And anybody who's played yeah. Chrono Trigger or Final Fa- anything from the Final Fantasy series is familiar with this. But unlike, you know, Skyrim or any other sort of large world sandbox WRPG, mm-hmm. it's it's not. The world is small, right? It's, right. It's, <coughs> it's very structured. It's yeah. a very structured game. Character creation is very tailored. You're handed yeah. characters with archetypes and even battle roles to a certain degree rather yes. than creating them. Yeah. And it feels like there's a density to a lot of the spaces that you go to. They're very small, but they're dense. There's like lots of it's very layered, yeah. art assets and mm-hmm. things you can do in one small space. So There's good utilization of tropes, which we'll talk about <laughs> later yeah. in this right, conversation. Right. For but sure. Yeah. So uh, it's probably good if we just touch base uh, thinking about our sort of experiences with the game individually. So um, Derek, 
your experiences with Persona 5. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I, I think this game is really fascinating in a lot of different ways. I think it has a really cool visual style that's like really obvious. It's got all of the, like the UI design and the, the design of like a lot of those things that you would think, oh, you just put a text box in there. It skews the line on that. And like all of these skewed lines visually create a lot of movement even when there isn't. I think it makes it visually interesting. I really like how it sort of has this inter or transmedial qualities. It's clearly drawing from anime and it literally has anime scenes in it, like literal drawn out scenes that are interspersed throughout the game. Um, you know, it's drawing on the language of, of film when there's sort of like a flashback. You have this sense that like the, the film ribbon is slowing down mm-hmm. and the scene, like the scenes are being coming uh, blocked out or something like that. Um, it really like leans into other genre expectations. It's got a great music, great soundtrack that has this really evocative like synth moog stuff. And it creates really great moods uh, throughout the game. Like there's... It's that, that, that plays like when you're in the cafe at the end of the evening. It's like a really chill kind of music. And then there's like really, you know, hype kind of, you know, uh, Power Rangers kind of music that like happens during the battles. And I think those, all of those elements sort of combine in really interesting ways. Um, I, I, I really, I think this, this is something more for Sontag, this question of the real versus the metaverse and the cognitive world versus the real world. But um, I don't know. I, I, I found it really refreshing in a certain way. And it might be because of the things, Sabine, that you mentioned, because as a person with limited JRPG experience, I think Final Fantasy is pretty much all I've really played. The, the, the ways they characterize the, the, the way the characters traits sort of you know, can be seen throughout various levels of the game of mechanical in mechanical ways and through combat and through interactions. Um, and they're tropey too, right? It's really the whole game is sort of overblown and stylistic. But um, I found something kind of charming about that. So I'll start. I'll start. I'll stop there. Yeah, I agree with all that. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean that echoes a lot of what I was going to say too. Um, I think, like, in, just in terms of the narrative, I thought it was really kind of like a masterpiece in like building a narrative like I feel like the first two hours of the game were like guest directed by Christopher Nolan (laughs) because it starts with like an action scene and you hear voices and you're like okay and it's like kind of teaching you how to play but you're like running through a casino and then you get captured by the police and you're like you don't know anything that's going on and like the entire plot of the game up to like you know the 12 hours in I don't know about the rest of the game um is that you were telling your story to a uh, like a I guess like a DA yeah mm-hmm. um, or an assistant DA whatever the equivalent is in Japan um, who's trying to like get to the truth and so you'll have these moments where you're the game space is you're telling it and you'll it's like meet someone new and it'll flash up back to you in this like Derek was saying very like transmedial way of like yeah. the kind of ribbon starts flying up and you you know it, it zooms into your face and the assistant DA is like, oh, so you must have had like someone who supplies you medicine, you right. know, to like to like, do do all these, you know, thieving jobs. And mm-hmm. then it's like you meet the doctor and like right. that. So you realize like mm-hmm. this she is this doctor is going to be an essential part of your story. And I, I thought it was pretty amazing and really well done. And it was something that I, I think I, I took for granted a lot. But when I think I've put, you know, 12 hours into this game and I can explain like all of these like like over a dozen relationships you know like um over like a hundred different ways to play the game and all these things just the way that they brought in uh tactics and relationships and strategies in the game into the actual play of the game and the story and the content 
was done extremely well, and yeah. I was really impressed by it. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I agree with both Kyle and Derek. The game is gorgeous. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a beautiful game. And I agree with Kyle that the narrative framing and the narrative structure are utilized to great effect, right? It, you're hooked from the get-go, kind of out of necessity. Um, and the way the game plays out that you're in real time kind of telling your story and then the gameplay is actually flashbacks, right? What you're mm -hmm. doing is a flashback and kind of filling in the pieces. Um, so that definitely keeps it interesting from a on a more meta level so not the metaverse but <laughs> meta in terms of in terms of me as a person playing this game so me participating in the game um i think it's to me it was very clear who the game was tailored for who made it and what the purpose of the game was so um i was so i was told that this was one of the highest rated games of 2017 I hadn't played it until this last week so I came in with these sort of expectations and you know I looked into all the reviews before I started playing it and then returned to the reviews and kind of looked at what was highlighted right and everybody talks about how one it's stylish right undeniably so mm -hmm. the music is great the animation itself is really fluid and beautiful it's vibrant it's a little bit kitsch mm -hmm. um but it's it's it it grabs you right the aesthetics of the game really grab you um, and then the, you know, technicalities of battle was another thing that a lot of reviewers focused on, right? Um, and just how nuanced and interesting they they make it for the player in the game and how it kind of develops as you play, right? You develop your fighting style as you develop narratively in the game. I think what was particularly interesting, so there was a review on Kotaku by Kirk Hamilton, right? And at the end of it, he says, at its most basic, Persona 5, offers the fantasy of a perfect teenage life. <laughs> and my question is, who's perfect yeah. teenage life? <laughs> there right? seem to be some teen lives that you wouldn't want to live in this right. story. Yeah. And it's, the game, I mean, the game is rated M, right? So presume, ostensibly, it's for adults. Mm -hmm. But adults who are playing as a teenager, right? So in a lot of ways, the game allows you to live out you know, fantasies that you might have had as a teenager, right? There's this whole hot for teacher, you know, element to it. Um, it's very, it's painfully heteronormative. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's pretty basic as far as the experiences of the protagonist are concerned. Like the nuances come in, I think, in your interactions, but to an extent, right, with certain characters. And then other characters, I was surprised by how short-sighted the writing was. Right. In particular, the dynamics between male and female characters, which is going to be a big part of this conversation later. So I'll hold off on saying anything more specific. But it, it was weird to be both aesthetically moved and also kind of intellectually put off by certain elements of the game. But just as a quick follow up, I think, you know, uh, I, I think we could jump to one specific example. One of the characters on. Um, throughout a lot of the dungeon, um, you know, so she's involved in Kamoshida and she's part of that. Like he tries to exert power over her to coerce her to have sex and she refuses. And this sort of has really negative consequences for one of her friends. And so that's really, that's a really serious moment of the game. The game is being like, the tone is very serious when it sort of shows you that. Um, and then throughout combat, uh, Morgana will just sort of comment, wow, on you're so beautiful oh my gosh, you look so great. And those moments are not only, they're definitely intellectually jarring, 
But I would, I think they also kind of disrupt the enjoyment. They disrupt mm-hmm. the pleasure, right? I think for some people, some people might play that and be like, uh, fuck this. Like, I'm not into this. Like, this this is no longer an enjoyable experience for me even. Um, so, like, just to add to your thing mm-hmm. is, like, intellectually weird. Yeah, I like the look, but actually that is enough to take me out um, of Alt- enjoyment. Also, it feels narratively disrupting. You start off as this high school student, and you bef- the first thing you do is befriend this other male high school student, Ryuji. And he, like you, has a you know criminal past or a criminal record. So you're both these outcasts in this high school. Everybody's kind of wary of you. And Ryuji enters the metaverse with you, right? Um, and neither of these characters know what's going on. Rutabaga? I'm just going to call the protagonist. <laughs> use our... I love it. Okay, great. Okay, I think great. it's great. Yeah, so, yeah. so Rutabaga <laughs> and Ryuji yeah, yeah. enter the metaverse, which is this very, it's a palace, but, a, but it's dark. Think Bowser's Castle, right? Yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not Cinderella's Castle. It's Bowser's Castle. It's it's dark. It's um, Most of it takes place in the dungeon, which is aesthetically really cool and yeah. also disturbing. Yes. <laughs> um. So, But you and Ryuji kind of, Ryuji kind of serves as your foil or your I guess, dialectical. Uh, <laughs> your dialectical buddy. Your dialectical buddy. Yeah, yeah, you work through what's going on in dialogue with Ryuji. So exactly. that's one, that's a really clever way to kind of get the game laid out, I think, mm-hmm. on, in terms of a structural, uh, on a structural level. But, yeah. and then on, you meet in one of your classes in the actual school, right? So in the real world, not the metaverse. And they're illusion. she's quiet, she's, you know, very pretty. She has this very long flowing hair, very stereotypically feminine, right? She's hyper-feminized. And you meet her in a classroom and you overhear a student saying, oh, well, you know, I think she's dating Kamoshida. So it's never made explicit what the relationship between her and the volleyball, the PE coach is. But you know, it's not, it's not a normal mentor-mentee relationship. Mm -hmm. But they also make it clear that she's not very comfortable with this relationship either, right? Things like her facial expressions are a little bit, um, I don't know, how would I? How would you describe her facial expressions? She's like hesitant and sort of, uh, she looks troubled and, and yeah. distraught and yeah. Yeah, and then as you come to explore the palace and figure out what's kind of happening and you meet, you know, uh, Metaverse Kamoshida and eventually Metaverse On, you get a, better idea of what the connection between the two are. And then An ends up being a, a major character in the game, right? She ends up joining your team later. But um, so just to kind of lay that out. So that's the that's the character that An is and sort of the purpose that she serves. In a lot of ways, she's kind of the catalyst for what actually goes on in... She, she kind of allows a narrative to move into this discussion of abuse. Right. And abuse of power, physical abuse, sexual abuse, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just a quick note on something I love in the game, and also, like, I think is reflective more upon, like, the genre of anime, is, like, so, you know, you're walking to school when you first meet On, mm-hmm. right? And you're, like, kind of a dark-haired guy with glasses, and you're walking by literal, literal faceless people, mm-hmm. and then a blonde woman with, like, a highly stylized face comes in and is like, oh, I'm just here, and I'm like, I wonder if she's going to be a major character <laughs> in this, hmm. Or, yeah. like, you know, when you first meet Ryuji, it's, again, like, faceless people the same dark hair, yep. both genders, same outfits. Then you see a dude wearing like a graphic tee and right. blonde spiky hair. And uh-huh. I'm like, and is never standing up straight. Yeah, right. He's, he's always got the long knees. Yes. Like, well, is that, okay, sorry, this is maybe too like specific. No. I think Kamoshida broke his leg. He did. Right? Oh, and like, is that yeah. why he's bow-legged? Yes. I 
that makes sense. That's why like, he can't do track anymore. That makes yeah. sense. So Ryuji has a criminal record. He prior to this criminal record, Ryuji was the star athlete on the track team, mm-hmm. and he harbors a great hatred of and grudge toward Kamoshida. You don't really quite get explicitly why the grudge exists it, at the beginning. Yeah, at the beginning, right mm-hmm. initially. Over time, the relationship becomes a lot more clear because Kamoshida was at some point coach of the track team, and now there is no more track team. Yeah, right. So he's because Kamoshida wanted like the volleyball team to be successful. This is such weird school politics. Right. <laughs> so he like he took over yeah. the track team and like abused them until he forced Ryuji, who to he confront like him. To well, confront him. Yeah, and the, the the extra sort of level to that that eventually comes out is that um, he actually provokes Ryuji by bringing yeah. up the sort of abuse within his own family mm-hmm. and saying, well, you, you know, sort of laying it in his feet and that sort of provokes Ryuji to attack him. Mm-hmm. And then Kamashita um, retaliates. becomes the sort of grounds for violent. Right. Yeah. Cancel the team. Right. Yeah. This is a dark game, guys. Yeah. <laughs> we've gone to dark, yeah. I feel like we Already. were gonna, Okay, now let's talk about camp. Yeah, let's get into camp. Okay, well, so. I think it'd be good to inform this conversation yeah. to bring in these texts. Can I talk about my experience with the game? Please do. Yeah. Yes. Oh, my God. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I think that this game, as I think Kyle um, and some others mentioned, is not subtle. Mm-hmm. And that's precisely the point. Uh, on the Game of the Year episode, I remember mentioning that I had started trying to, like, you know, touch some of the games and get a sense for them. And I started with Wolfenstein 2. And it's just like, oh, Nazis. Wow. <laughs> um, and it's like, all right, let's 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 put this down. And then I popped in Persona 5, and it was like, yes. Um, the way that, you know, Persona 5 put resistance on the table in this kind of flashy, fun, stylish mm-hmm. way. The fact that there was always this kind of, like, you know, as Derek mentioned, the lines are never quite perpendicular. There's always this sort of curvy, curvy sort of architecture or, like, you know, angled jags, so on and so forth. Um, that, along with, you know, the sort of idea of a persona being this thing that you don. You know, that's the reason I sort of call it, and I think I was the one to sort of introduce this to, you know, the four of us. It's very much a Power Rangers game, right? Mm-hmm. Like, And I think that that may have something to do with why Kirk Hamilton called it the sort of perfect um, teenager game, is that it gives you enough of the sort of teenage angst stuff to be upset about, but it also gives you your sort of ability to rebel against those things. Now, whether or not that's a responsible fantasy, I think is something that we can entertain. But mm-hmm. nonetheless, I think that, you know, whenever the song Willpower plays or I forget uh, Awakening as the song that comes on when someone sort of gets into mm-hmm. their persona, there's a part of me that's just like, yeah. yeah. Same thing when they play those first opening riffs to the Power Rangers theme. So yeah, that's a that's the kind of thing that I think it connected to and spoke to to me. And I think that might actually be a really great thing to carry into our conversations uh, about Sontag, both in terms of her essay against interpretation and her notes on camp. Derek, would you like to take us away? Of course. Um, so I, I think the the first essay against interpretation is is a really fascinating one. I think it actually links up with game studies in a really interesting way. Um, so Sontag wrote Against Interpretation in 1966, I think. Mm-hmm. That's what I have written here. Yeah, 1966. And she's clearly writing amidst in a milieu of criticism that at least she perceives as like really heavily focused on content and sort of symbolic reading. Um, so for those of you who are not maybe in 
the doing the nuances of grad school stuff and literature programs specifically, um, there was a long tradition in literary studies of sort of reading texts to sort of see what they meant beneath the surface mm-hmm. or revealing their secret meanings. And right? not only, but like also like art. I mean, you can right. say it's text too, right? But like, right. so she was like an art critic right. and like a literary critic. And so film, like film critic. Yeah, right. so she talks about all that. In the right, piece. exactly. And so like, you know, you could do a Marxist critique where you, tr- and this is things we've done in this podcast, right? right. Like we, we, have, we have like looked to see how this particular thing symbolizes a relationship between the working class and the the, mm-hmm. the capitalist like class what does it mean like right like, exactly. this is what it is but what does it mean exactly <laughs> right so like okay everyone can see that it means this but what does it actually mean right and that's a sort of specialist move that you need specialist codes to really uh, understand and I think Sontag when she wrote this was kind of frustrated with that um, and she sees this but she doesn't and you know it it may be the case that she felt this happening in her own particular time especially but she really wants to make the case that this is a really long sort of long history to this debate you know to this idea of of representation and symbol and like reading things symbolically and interpreting things um so she she takes it all back to ancient greek uh greece uh <laughs> with uh, she doesn't cite plato directly but plato's clearly the person in the background here. So Plato writes all sorts of dialogues featuring Socrates. And, you know, he has a lot of stuff, like especially in the Republic, where like we're going to ban the poets from society because they don't know how things are. They just know how to make appearances. They just know how to like imitate real life. And that's a shadow of truth. That's not real reality. And reality is better because that's more important. And like these poets are just going to lead us astray, right? They deal in mere representation. Uh, and and I think that you know she sees this. This is a basically a moment where art and the poets have to defend themselves against the theory. She calls them art theorists, but I think you know philosophers or critics or you know whatever word you want to use there is, is sort of fits. Um, and uh, and so in response to this attack on art, art critics sort of develop this defense, and this defense is to say, okay, there's something about my thing that I would call content. Yeah, that's your mimesis. That's your representation of the real world. But there's also form, right? There's also the sort of way I'm presenting this stuff, right? There's also things like style or, or a certain, you know, artistic character or something. There, there are there are many different categories about this. But the form form and content sort of arise as a, as a sort of bifurcation because they need to answer this theorist's, really this philosopher's critique of art. And so uh, in that way, then, like, the content becomes essential. Like, exactly. it, it is the thing that has meaning and value, and right. the form is, like, it's there, too. That's you know? how the like, poets like yeah. to do it. They're just having fun. And like, there is their... truth that can yes. be accessed, right. and it can be accessed through art, through uh, me- from movies, through TV, through uh, books, you know? But, like, that's what's essential, not the form that it takes. Right. right. Mm-hmm. right. Very kind of echoes sort of the way that um, – Plato, at certain points, I want to say it's the Symposium. Yeah. Maybe it's the Gorgias, uh, sort of talks about rhetoric as a kind of form of flattery. And Right, right. And it's just like, it's mere flattery, right? It's yeah. just sort of... It's devoid of content. Window dressing, yeah. it's not that important. Um, and so and so Sontag is like, you know what? This is stifling. This is like, at, at certain times, this was important. At certain times and places, it is, still continues to be, and will be important to do interpretive work. There'll be times when that's the necessary work that you need to do. But she feels like in her particular moment, in her particular time, this practice of interpretation has become stifling, boring. It's just sort of like restricting thought instead of uh, allowing. It's become reactionary and, and it's not leading to new and interesting ideas about art. So she really wants us to shift our focus. And one of the things she wants to shift to focus to is form. 
And where have we seen this before? But with the very thing with which we started our podcast, which was the idea of sort of, uh, you know, a content form divide or sort of like a ludology, narratology divide, right? This is the only debate ever. It's the history. only one. It's the ludology we'll versus narratology. It <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I only just sort of flag it here because I think it's interesting. I think the I think the ludology, narratology debate shows, you know, Sontag really thinks, you know, form is actually going to get away from this oppressive analysis of content. I think ludology narratology shows us that form, it's like an overemphasis on form can actually be regressive in its own way, right? That all of a sudden we don't even think about content and we forget representation does matter. It's not the only thing that matters. But when we start like not thinking about representation at all, that's like a, a bridge too far and that can become regressive as well. So that's sort of like one thing that Sontag proposes. And the other thing which I just love, which is she just sort of mentions uh, in passing um, – which I, I don't know if it just fits into form, but she thinks it's different than form. Uh, she's, she says there's also that we could just say, let's not think about form, but just think, think about a loving description of the surface of things. A really like loving attention to aesthetics, to appearance. Um, and she has a really good quote. I just want to read this. Um, Ideally, it is possible to elude the interpreters in another way. By making works of art whose surface is so unified and clean, whose momentum is so rapid, whose address is so direct that the work can be just what it is. Is this possible now? It does happen in films, I believe. Period. Page 11. Dot, dot, dot. Derek adds. And maybe in video games, too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I think this is, the, for us, like in, in our moment, like, and especially with Persona 5, there's something about its slick surface sort of embrace of a really sort of overblown style that that lends itself to that sort of approach yeah this is something that i just wanted to comment on is that i i i'm i was a big fan of that part too and, and her closing line too which says in place of a hermeneutics we need an erotics of art right so like appreciate the kind of like immediacy and beauty of this thing and i think if you're a critic that's super good and like something that should be kept in mind but what i was curious about was like like there are technical skills you need to make that, right? So like a filmmaker, a video game producer, you can't just tell them like, make something beautiful, you know, <laughs> right? Like the creators of Persona 5 had to be like, what tells people's brains that like something is smooth and cool? Yeah. You know, what tells people that this is an impressive, beautiful thing, you know? Um, and it just seemed like a kind of disconnect with me for Sontag is that she didn't really bring up like, the creative elements of it, just the appreciative elements, which makes sense because she's a critic. Right, but exactly. I think that's why she says an erotics of art. She does not go to something like the sublime. She does not go to the beautiful. She does not go to anything. In fact, I think the erotics does something to ground it in a kind of weird thing that we're almost not comfortable with to talk about what we're erotically engaged or attracted to. And I guess I'm thinking about this, just you know, something really weird about Persona that sticks out to me. It doesn't really have a combat menu right and when i say menu i'm thinking about how usually with menus there's like the cursor and like you can press up and it goes tweet, 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 tweet. Yeah. with this every button yeah. takes you to something right like the button and the map of the button is sort of the menu rather than the menu being something abstract mm -hmm. and it gets to this weird thing that typically doesn't happen in rpgs like a simple example of it is when you're playing final fantasy 7 and you press circle and it accepts something, but usually in other games that are made in, in America or United States, 
X is accept and circle is cancel. Mm-hmm. And that you get really weird when you move from one set of conventions to the next. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that there's something about Persona's connections in terms of how it lays out the menu that forces you to kind of think outside of, I'm just moving on an abstract. Like, no, nah, like pressing up is drawing out the gun and right, doing this, yeah. this, 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 that, and the other. Yeah. And that weird way that it sort of short circuits the mind sort of abstraction that typically happens with RPGs to mm-hmm. get to that sort of embodied emphasis is I think where the erotics piece comes in yeah. and mm-hmm. thinking about how to do that. Yeah. Well, so I was going to kind of go back to the what Derek brought up because on a few pages after she talks about you know the surface of things, she defines it as transparency. And she says under section nine, transparency is the highest, most liberating value in art and in criticism today. Transparency means experiencing the luminousness of the thing in itself, of things being what they are. And I think what Terrell just mentioned about combat is is very much in the spirit of this, right? Um, Combat is made as non-abstract as possible in this RPG and even some of the later Final Fantasies. Right after the um, D-pad scrolling kind of went out of fashion, and yeah. and you see this in just the development of game consoles in general, right? Like the Wii um, has a very physical element to it, and the way in which Persona Five both allows you to appreciate the surface beauty, but also be involved in some of the beautiful mechanics of the game. Like I would say, the the fluidity of the game itself is is something aesthetic. Right, um, and it adheres to what Sontag wants to emphasize about what art needs to be, and it's too bad that this piece was written in 1966 because I would love to see what Sontag would have to say about video games. I really would too. I I just like with that thing about it might be film. I'm like Sontag, you've got to know it's games, it's <laughs> right? Games yeah. Now and video it, games didn't exist then. Right, right, right. <laughs> well, I mean, like yeah, to a certain degree, we've we've touched this before. I mean, this is Felsky. Yeah, yeah. Right? right, right, exactly. But it's also interesting that she uses the term surface because, you know, um, Sharon, Sharon Marcus and Stephen Best have a whole concept of surface reading. It's along the same sort of lines. So Yeah, yeah I was going to bring up Felsky, too. For, I mean, it was in our um, Nostalgia and the Limits of Criticality episode on yeah. Breath of the Wild. Um, I think Felsky, it, I mean, it's clearly building off of Sontag, right? Yep. I mm-hmm. think she even mentions Sontag I think in she does the piece, too. right? Yeah. Um, but the thing I always liked about Felsky was she said, um, it was Rita Felsky, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. Rita Felsky said that we should we should be able open to like a number of responses to something, right? So Sontag says like let's appreciate its surface, but Felsky says like if it makes you feel happy, like loved, if it makes you feel nostalgic, sad, emotional, you know, like just ex- like let that be, you know, like experience those emotions. And I think mm-hmm. that is a little more expansive than what Sontag is saying mm-hmm. here about aesthetics and. The erotics of art as something that, like you know, awakens a styli or stylish. Um... How do bodies move across a surface? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. I feel right. Like I, I, that's where I think erotics is gesturing towards. I certainly don't think she develops it necessarily. But... Yeah, yeah. And I think video games trouble this bifurcation that Sontag is criticizing in this piece. Right? She says that we need to reintegrate form in our understanding of art, but you can't really ignore either form or content when you're playing a video game because yeah. the form directly informs the content and vice versa um, in terms of combat again, right? You, in a sense, are physically involved in the combat because you have to align what you're doing physically 
with what you want the characters to be doing on screen. Right. Right. So the form there informs the content, but mm -hmm. also the sort of story and the way in which it's told, the way in which the content is presented. Um, it's interesting to me that Sontag doesn't f talk about that as much. And this, right, this piece is mid-century, mid-20th century. And I mm -hmm. think art has, art criticism too has changed a lot in the like, 60 years. Thanks to Sontag a lot too, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, she's a hugely influential, yeah. Right. Yeah. So I don't know if you guys want to talk about how form and content are so closely intertwined in this game and whether or not we think it's effective or... This is, I mean, I think this is... You know, part of that form content thing, though, as well, like, I think I think Sontag would be totally on board with the idea that we experience both. It's she's just seeing, like, in writing about the thing, yeah. what do we choose to focus on? And, like, right. what do we choose to highlight as the important thing? And we started off the discussion with that really heavy discussion of, of what is pretty much content. There are little formal things, like yeah. the camera lingers on the woman for a while. Or, or there, you know, mechanically, when you get critted, you get knocked down in a sexually suggestive pose. Mm -hmm. Um but like I'll, I'll, you know, the the question the question of form versus content is almost more a question for for criticism for Definitely. what this thing kind of is with the podcast like how we structure our conversation about the thing is where we really have end up having to be like okay how do we how do we sort through those things yeah and in what instances are form and content in tension with one another which Absolutely. I saw a lot of in Persona Five in its portrayal of sexuality or sexual objectification um and we can get to sort of the mechanics of how the game addresses those visually versus in terms of dialogue the more explicit sort of descriptions of what's happening in in the dungeon right as you're walking through the dungeon um you see people behind bars and you realize that they're slaves and then you realize that they're wearing students outfits and you realize oh they look like students so the students are the slaves and it's very overt mm -hmm. right um but less i guess much more subtle and in a way a bit more insidious i think is the way in which certain things in the game are presented um that seem to clash with this very anti-sexual harassment message that comes through at the beginning right the overt vision or um, presentation of this sexual predator and sexual and physical abuser versus how you as a protect how Rutabaga mm -hmm. is able to form relationships yeah. with other characters in the game. Yeah. Right. What's I, available, what's not. And, right. You know. What are you allowed to say? What aren't you allowed to say? How does the linear quality of the plot work against what the game is trying to do in yeah. certain ways, yeah. mm -hmm. how the form of the game sometimes yeah. works against what it's trying to do. Yeah, I've um, been thinking about this idea, I think we all have, of ludonarrative dissonance for some time. Um, I think that's kind of what we're talking about here, maybe to a certain degree. And um, in a different context, I think thinking about dissonance of framing, I think is the way that different um, discourses might take it up. So. Um, film can do a similar thing. Uh, something that you know, came to my attention through a YouTube channel that I've been watching lately, um, the movie Transformers, the original one, is actually quite dissonant in terms of the way Michaela is sort of framed as like a protagonist who can fix cars and do all sorts of things, but then the camera treats her like a piece of meat, right? Mm -hmm. So, And it's one thing to say that you know those things are dissonant, but then it's another thing to say that like, 
that meant like a bunch of adolescent viewers got to go into the uh, the theater and say, hey, yeah, female protagonist, good. I get still get to look at her and say how hot she is, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that those moments of dissonance always, I think, end up kind of hitting each other, not to become dissonant, but to create certain types of spectatorship mm-hmm. in a way that ultimately becomes consistent. You know, celebrate the female protagonist. More more women in film. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now the boys are crying out. Like, more Michaelis. Yeah, yeah, are, yeah. are you calling Michael Bay a proto-feminist? <laughs> He's truly a visionary. I, I, think, <laughs> I, think, I think Michael Bay is, and and persona to a certain degree, is, is why we got to be careful with what we want to give the feminist seal of approval to. Or we yeah. got to be careful for trying to look at media and say, ah, feminism, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Rather than thinking... Gender, how is it operating, and to yeah. what end? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So Michael Bay is a person who plays around with gender. Like I'd agree with that in his movies. Like or like, like <laughs> you say, play. Yeah, I mean, like play like, is a tricky, tricky word. <laughs> given some of our other texts, like yeah, actually, <laughs> is interested in like certain gender tropes and uses them to, along with explosions, bring people into movies. Yeah. Who is it? Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe that play thing is a good transition for Berlant. Okay. Yeah. Um, Lauren Berlant, The Predator, and uh, The Jokester. This is our third piece and I think is um, somewhat definitely connected with a number of things that we've um, already talked about. Uh, up front, this piece is is slippery. It's hard to, to get your hands on it. Um I want to say that, interestingly enough, and it just occurred to me how useful it is to put Berlant and Sontag together, I think Berlant is trying to, to, to shake out of the, the, the things that interpretation and critical responsibility force upon someone in her position. She's a professor at the University of Chicago, I want to say in their English department. One of her major books is Cruel Optimism, which is very much a book of critique. Um, if you read some of it closely, there are moments of possibility. But I think that part of the reason this is such a difficult thing to read is because she wants to see if she can't be expressive as well as interpretive at once and give you a text that is analytical but also something of a surface to, to engage with. Um, now, a couple of things that I think um, are important to, to sort of sit with that. And um, I think one example that demonstrates some of the difficulty in kind of processing it is this is the second paragraph uh she uses the term some in some interesting ways um Hmm. some are using the language and she's writing in the context of the me too movement um some are using the language of the witch hunt which is a term people use when they feel women are coming after men as though they are the worst guy as though the worst guy is the typical one then followed by that same sentence or different sentence some queers are reviving the language of the moral panic and fear that this moment justifies and amplifies erotophobia mm-hmm. an already pervasive hatred of sex that ends up harming women lgbtq identified people anyone whose sexuality or body or appetites have been historically disparaged by the state the hygienic bourgeois and the religious now when i see some in that context, yeah, and this is the the teacher or the instructor of composition and English and writing in me. I think, huh, maybe you're setting yourself up. You know, that's the that's the set for the spike to mm-hmm. say, but they're wrong. 
But instead, we get two sums, and maybe there are more sums, maybe there are other sums. Mm-hmm. The sums feel ambiguous. I'm not sure what the relationship between these two sums is. And that becomes a bit ambiguous. And given that that's the second paragraph to the first paragraph in which he's discussion, <laughs> discussing Al Franken and his resignation, in the second sentence of that paragraph, he will be gone from the Senate not because he was a vicious predator, but because there was a bad chemical reaction between his sexual immaturity, his just having fun with women's bodies, and this moment of improvisatory boundary drawing that likens the jokester to the predator. Mm-hmm. Ends that paragraph with, what's going on? And that's a confounding for a number of reasons. Um, you know, a bad chemical reaction. So if we took out one piece, would the reaction become stable? If one of them were on their own, right? If he was, if it was just a matter of just having fun with women's bodies, that'd be okay. I, I mean, I I think I get what you're saying, and this I, it speaks to the fundamental slipperiness of the Berlant piece. Like it was a piece that I thought I knew what it was going to be when I went into it, and I was like, great, got it, I'm all set. This is going to be about like power and how jokes operate in the same halls of power as predatory nature, et cetera, et cetera. But it's not quite that, Mm-mm. right? And But I think there's something to be said. Like, if the Me Too movement wasn't happening, Al Franken's still in the Senate. He's running for president in mm-hmm. 2020, right? Yep. Like, that's happening, right? Mm-hmm. It, it is Al Franken, of all of the, like, the big kind of Me Too um, moments for me, is probably the most... Uh, like signatory because it was a moment where you're like you could clearly see this has happened before you know like hundreds if not thousands of mm-hmm. times and there was no punishment at all right mm-hmm. and now this person's career is completely derailed for a good reason right, right. Um, so that it is only in that context of the Me Too movement yeah. that this mm-hmm. is happening and it is not again objectively what he did is not right it is wrong right. it is morally reprehensible mm-hmm. but it is it would not have been politically reprehensible. Mm-hmm. Two years ago. Mm-hmm. Right. And to add to that, something that, you know, you putting it like that just made me realize. Um, and and she does mention that she thought that he could have taken on Trump mm-hmm. and yeah. maybe even won. Yeah. But I don't I, I insofar as she mentions that. So ever so briefly, there's a sense of the kind of utilitarian argument of, yeah, he did yeah. this, but he could take down this really bad guy doing this other things, but I don't think she ever takes that up, and yeah. mm-hmm. and rightfully so, because I don't think that that's... It's not, not a utilitarian calculus. It doesn't matter, yeah. Uh. Yeah, right, precisely. Um, it's just a couple other points. Um, again, there'll be a, a blog post that will be available on the Scholars at Play website, so that will give a little bit of more of a close reading of the various moments in this piece, but... Um, I think that notion of slippage is very much something that she's entertaining and sometimes enacting through her language. Um, And that's where we get a sense of the predator and the jokester. And I want to put these two things out there and and make it clear that the way she talks about them is fairly abstract. I Mm -hmm. think there are some examples that we get. I think we're taken to understand ways in which we can read Al Franken as a jokester. Yes. But the clearest delineation between the two at that level of abstraction is that the predator, quote, creates a situation they can exploit. It is often cushioned by a menacing sense that they control the interactive space and that they're unavoidable. She follows up by talking about the goof, which we can assume is another slippage to the, the jokester. Mm-hmm. 
performs a joke which is mostly spontaneous and casual. It is shaped by the play of surprise and hard to process in the moment. Time and fresh awkwardness provide the jokester's cushion, however slight. In both cases, the target suddenly feels baffled or overwhelmed, end quote. And so we're thinking about the sort of improvisatory uh, boundary drawing that she talks between those. And to what degree can she talk about that without um, sort of influencing it? And I think a lot of the spirit of this piece is written with attention to, I think, what a number would, of people would call post-modern um, kind of writing or modes of representation, the sort of fragmentation, the ways that things kind of slip into one another. Uh, but I just want to put out there that one of the things that she does that's really important and I think is always a critical piece to any um, informed use of postmodernism is that she puts the stakes out there, which is mm -hmm. the body, often a marginalized body, suffering trying to wrestle with this, which is her own account of someone who experienced sexual assault and trying to come to terms with it. And um, I could read some a short passage from that, I think, would give you a sense. Um, this is her, Berlant, recounting what she's heard from the survivor. Mm. She meant, he just did enough to enjoy himself without breaking the law as he understood it. She meant, he didn't know what he was doing either, because he was pretty young, though significantly older. She meant, he had deniability. She meant, not much happened. He toyed. And the line that she sort of uses to, to sort of introduce the whole thing is um, the survivor saying, he toyed with my body. And this idea of toying as a thing that we would assume is something a jokester does. But in this case, how can we delineate that from the predator? And maybe even raising the more important question, which I think is something of a postmodern move, is insofar as we have a distinction between these two groups, what value is that distinction if at the end of the day the result is the same? Yeah, right. I think that's totally right. And I think that's what I like most about the Berlant piece. You know, is in the end, she says, uh, I think I have a quote here somewhere, basically saying that, like, um, both the predator and the jokester put their victims in, like, a similar situation, if you think about it, which is uh, by controlling, quote, time and, mm -hmm. time and space and the framing of consequences in domains of capital, labor, institutional belonging, and speech situa situations. So it is kind of all operating in the similar realm of power, is, is what I would call those kind of more specific cases, right? It's the same case as a boss who their subordinates always laugh at their jokes because even if they're not funny, right? It's right. like, it is obviously not clearly not as bad as sexual assault, but it's a form of power relationship mm -hmm. that is being mm -hmm. extorted and used for um, mm -hmm. that person's gain, right? Precisely. And so like the kind of final consequence is what she like leads to is that we shouldn't be talking about these uh, like kind of things, different categories that we should be focused on is breaking down the kind of power relationships that suffuse mm -hmm. and uh, that suffuse all of these um, interactions of humans, whether it's boss to employee, man to woman, uh, you know, CEO to employee, right? I said that twice. Uh, you know, <laughs> any kind of power relationship, whether yeah. it's economic, uh, social, uh, cultural, mm -hmm. religious, right. yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that question of scale is something that she's particularly concerned with. And um, I think that's one of the things that may really inform our conversation here is because it deals with this question of um, something that, you know, if you could forgive me a pun, genre bodies. Because <laughs> this is very much a piece about genre, I think, but mm -hmm. not just the genre of, you know, stand-up routine versus something like a novel or an essay, but to think of the predator as a kind of genre. And mm -hmm. we can see that genre iterated as a trope, perhaps, in Kamashita. Yeah. Um, 
but to what degree is, you know, thinking about just that one scale, the predator, ignore some of the other things that are going on, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, for example, in that instance that you mentioned with the CEO, but then the, the various others are sort of laughing on the joke. You know, those are each different scales. But, you know, saying that oh, it was just a laugh, so on and so forth is something that she's very critical yeah. of. Right. Um, the way she phrases it, who made you the boss of genre? Yeah. Um, right. So I'm going to bring this back to Persona 5 for a moment and then we can return to the um, Berlant piece because there's so much more to it. But um, like you were saying, Kyle power differential allows or awards privileges to the person who is um, in the higher position of power, right? So CEO to employee, um, but even on a more, on a softer level, teacher to student, right? Um, And that's a really fascinating relationship in Persona 5 because your teacher is, when on one hand you have the PE coach who is abusing his position of power, right? by physically and sexually abusing um, the students on the volleyball team and previously on the track team. But you also have a lot of interaction with a teacher who is portrayed as very pretty and a little bit, I don't know, tired, a bit frustrated. You know, she's irritated that she's stuck with you, the troubled student. Um, I forget her name. Ko- Kawami? Miss Kawami, Miss, I think? I think... I can't remember. Kawakami? Kawakami. Kawakami. Something sounds like right. that. Yeah, that sounds I right. I have it somewhere. I feel... Anyway, we'll get to it. But as the game progresses, and I didn't get quite this far, right? This is probably in the 60th hour yeah. of the game. Um, you event, your interactions with female characters in the game allow for certain relationships to develop, Right. Friendships for sure, but some of these friendships can develop into more romantic or sexual relationships. And one of the people with whom you can have a sexual relationship is your teacher. And she's not the only character in a position of power relative to you, the student, the high school student, the minor, that allows the player to change the power differential, right? So you can act on this teenage fantasy of being with teacher. You can also act on this fantasy of being with your physician or a reporter, a person, a woman in a professional role, right? So in one sense, there is a power differential in which the power asymmetry is very extreme, right? That would be the case of Kamoshida. And he's very clearly the predator in this game. But then in another case where there's an asymmetry of power that you as the player can overcome in some way, what does that say about how power is operative among different types of pe- different types of yeah. genre bodies, right? And in this case, you're a male student. You're a male student, right? Um, I'm trying to find. You can have any name, but you only have one body. Yeah. Right. Yeah. There's a great article, uh, a great article in Kotaku by Luke Plunkett. And it's titled, Persona 5 Sexual Relationships Can Get Complicated. No kidding, Luke. Um, (laughs) He says, I'm going to read a a little bit of what he says. You ever wonder why games have those, this is a work of fiction disclaimer? Here's the reason. Because this game, by not being real, lets you have sex with not one, but three women in circumstances which would normally be frowned upon at best, Mm -hmm. but which within the confines of this game are considered entirely possible. 
These aren't meant to be real, believable characters. They're avatars, gatekeepers to more powerful abilities and perks, with their roles and personalities designed with one thing in mind. You might be playing as a kid, but not many kids play Persona. Some characters of whom are around your age and spend time with you eating ramen and working out and studying, others, like the ones we're talking about here, and he's talking about the three adult relationships that are possible in Persona 5. Others, like the ones we're talking about here, are adults there to exploit dormant teenage fantasies. You can say on the surface that a boy sleeping with his homeroom tutor is wrong, but Hot for Teacher wasn't written in a cultural vacuum. Mm -hmm. In a sense, your character is the one pursuing these reluctant women taking advantage of their weaknesses, right? So as you pursue these relationships, you find out that these women are not entirely happy. Um, you learn how they're dissatisfied with certain elements of their life. And in a sense, they, you know, they're portrayed as vulnerable in some way. And you as the character can exploit this vulnerability. And this just would not be the case if you were a female protagonist and your teacher or your tutor was male. It just wouldn't be the case at all. So... Yeah, power differentials certainly exist, but positions of power do not necessarily dictate what those power differentials are, right? And Persona 5 is really fascinating to me in that way because it mm. plays around with a very overt power differential and one which you as a player might not necessarily realize you're engaging in in a very distorted sort of way. God, just one real quick thing. Um, I guess I'm just wondering if we can't think about gender as a position or a structure of power. Definitely. And the oh, yeah. way in which the game is, is is saying something in those moments about how gender as a structure of power might trump, it's a weird thing to use as a verb, <laughs> um, something like you know a physician, patient, or teacher-student right? relationship. Right. Yeah. But that's or even age, right, is another structure right. of power. Right. right. And that's but that's particularly interesting because the game is so focused on sexual harassment, right? Which is in the game it's incredibly gendered, right? Kamashita's right. taking advantage of his male and female students, but his male students are being physically abused while his female students are being sexually abused. Right. Right. Why is it not that both the male and female students are being sexually yeah. abused? Because yeah. the entire dynamic of the game, I think, would change. The ways in which you interact with the men versus the women would not be as starkly distinct as they are portrayed. I, I would say that like there's that one student the the boy Mishima. with the, the shy with, boy Mashima or yeah the shy boy, I you know the game one one critic well then like criticism that's been floating around in like articles that were written about this is that in the localization some word for sexual assault or or something I'm not exactly sure what the Japanese word means but they rendered it in English as sexual harassment yeah mm -hmm. um, one of the big critiques was it is pretty clear this author wrote I think it's from Zam the Zam piece that it was it was rape and the game is sort of covering over that with sexual harassment yeah um and so and so i, I would just say that like um be, the game never the, i think the game heavily implies rape that boy character though has some of the same again not to prove that he has also been sexually assaulted like directly but like he has some of the affectations that i think you see some of the other women characters display he's sort of like ashamed and has like downcast eyes and yeah looks physically abused as well so uh, you know <laughs> i don't know what what point that what that, that really gets us but uh uh it, it, if i you know just to put a topping off on that maybe it just means that the game is coy and never really comes out to say that directly and maybe it would yeah so i agree that there's this implication that rape is taking place mm -hmm. i disagree that it's the case for all the female students in fact, I think the right. rape occurs once. Right. Yeah, he rapes Shiho. He rapes, right. yeah. yeah. Who is a friend of An. 
right, who ends up becoming a protagonist and a playable character. So An has a friend, Shiho, who's on the volleyball team. And at some point in the game, Shiho attempts to commit suicide by jumping off the roof of the school. She survives the suicide attempt, but it's a very jarring moment. Right? It's, a very, it's a very dark moment. And mm-hmm. I don't think this is the first time Persona has addressed suicide. No. I think this was a theme in, in I mean, some of the earlier the, ones. But and one of the earlier ones, it might have been three. It used to be you unlocked your Persona by taking a gun to your head. Wow. Ooh, that is... Huh. Well, I don't that want to talk about how that's problematic yeah. in its own set of ways. We don't have but, enough time for that. <laughs> no, not quite. But, and you're right in that the game never comes out and says that it's rape. But in this case, Kamoshida kind of uses that rape as leverage against An, right? So there's a moment where An enters the metaverse along with, you know, Ryuji and um, Rutabaga. Yeah. <laughs> uh, You've ruined it. I can't play this game ever again. <laughs> I've just I can like never play it. It's a cipher. No, it's actually Rutabaga. No, it's, it's actually Rutabaga. what it's called. It's yeah. uh, and she's you know chained to the wall, or her ankles and wrists are bound. And uh, Metaverse Kamoshida, who by the way is absurd looking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. He's wearing pink briefs. Mm-hmm. Right? That's the only clothing he's wearing, aside from a red furry cape, yeah, like a royal, a royal robe, yeah. 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 right, right, covered that is in often hearts, flung open to show his abs, yeah, right, and his and, pin, and his pink briefs, yeah. his yeah. pink bulge, yeah. yes, yes, that's, yeah. yeah, that's the way to put it. And yeah. so you have Metaverse Kamoshida talking to An, and this is where I think the reality Metaverse slippage is really interesting where Metaverse Kamoshida kind of tells on, well, you know, the the suicide was kind of your fault because you didn't, you know, make good on my advances. Yeah. You didn't willingly have sex with me or have a sexual relationship with me, right? Yeah. He never says sexual relationship overtly, right. but it's very heavily implied. Right. And then on starts feeling guilty, yeah. right? That she's responsible for her friend being raped because she wasn't willing to be mm-hmm. in a physical relationship with this man. Um. So that was a long tangent to say, yeah, I think I think rape exists in the game, but yes. I think it's a very localized scenario. Right. Yeah. Right. But is shy boy being sexually harassed? I think that's a possibility. But and I, I, I think but I think it's like there's no consequences, there's no dramatic yeah. narrative moment for yeah. the shy boy, right? No, and so not at to, all. To, like it's only Shiho that has that dramatic moment. Yeah. And I think insofar as the game never really explicitly says the word rape anywhere. Yeah we can take that narrative escalation to be as some sort of proof Absolutely. of. So. I, I also think that a lot of what's coming out here is sort of one of the things why I think it's important to have a conversation about this game is because like, I don't necessarily think this game is anti-sexual assault or rape or harassment, in part because, I mean, early on, as we mentioned, the first time we see on she's getting into the car with Kamashita and there are discussions about her dating him, yeah. mm-hmm. which, I mean... You know, I guess there's a there's a degree of imposing like Western standards of law, but like would be classified as statutory. And then the questions of yeah. consent come out, given the sort of different levels of power. Yeah. But also the very fact that you know you're he's also in these relationships with others, right? And now she's feeling sort of coerced mm-hmm. to do that particular thing, right? I think the question of consent all was all on the table in a ways that I think is precisely what Berlant's talking about with yeah. respect to scale. Right, that trying to move between those things and say, "Yo, this was this, but this was that." It's like, wow, this 
this complicated the entire field of what we're able to yeah. the call was. It's, like it's hard, it's hard all to see the power. distinctions anymore. It's all wrong, yeah. right? <laughs> right? Yeah. Right, and my favorite part about that scene of her getting into the car is her facial expression as the window's going up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it just looks defeated. Yeah. She doesn't look happy about getting in that car. It looks like it was a struggle, an internal struggle for her to get in the car. Mm-hmm. And then you start hearing, oh, you know, they're dating and she's very quiet as you see her in the school. She's kind of hunched over her desk. She's not very social. So, yeah, I think the uh, whether or not dating is a bad translation or what is it? It's hard, hard to say. say. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, none of us have Japanese skill to know. I, You know, one thing that I found, like I, I read a few reviews. I didn't read as many as you did, I think, Sabine. But like a lot of the conversation focused heavily on localization because I think for some reason – like games culture, the cult uh, that has developed around the Persona series and other Japanese games is really intensely focused on this idea of localization for various reasons, some of which are more legitimate than others. Um, You know, the purity of the Japanese product versus like, hey, we want good localization. Those are two very different approaches to why localization is important. Mm -hmm. But I think a lot of it gets slipped into this conversation about Mm -hmm. localization. Can I, um, just kind of like an additional point to what you were saying. So, yeah, I agree that the game is very much like anti-sexual, uh, anti-sexual abuse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and plays out in a very good way. But and bringing this back to the Berlant piece, it kind of echoed some of the things that have been progressing in the Me Too movement that I've noticed in the past, kind of maybe six to seven months. Is that so? When you finally confront Kamashita, Shadow Kamashita, like in the big final battle, right? You stolen his treasure, which is a crown, because um, he thinks he's like the king of the of the school, right? metaphors and um, <laughs> pretty on the nose yeah it's yeah. not really subtext it's not much yeah. interpretation yeah, happening it's pretty much super text right yeah, exactly just yelling it at you yeah. um he's he, a king yeah he thinks he's a king <laughs> when he's trying to kind of defend himself he says something on the lines of like it's not me there's a whole system that protects me the teachers want this the parents want this they're all free to overlook all of this stuff because i bring money to the school you know i make the school successful i'm the one who's gonna get get these kids into college right and so, I mean, there's a lot of debate about this, but the Me Too movement, we can say, it might have had its seeds in Donald Trump, but it flowered with Harvey Weinstein, right? That's the moment when the accusations finally were able to like bring down someone who had been committing sexual assault and harassment and abuse for literal decades, right? And this was a big part of the debate surrounding Harvey Weinstein was like, he wasn't doing this by himself, right? Mm-hmm. Harvey Weinstein was not systematically raping and abusing women for decades by himself, right? This was people were turning oh, turning blind eyes. People were paying off um, uh, uh, v- victims, right? This was not a single person, right? right? And so when Kamashita said that, I was like, hell yeah. Like, this is what we need to be bringing mm-hmm. attention to, right? Yep. It's infrastructure, the things that, that allow people in power to systematically abuse other people, right? But then... You defeat Kamoshida, and everything's solved, right? Yeah. You go back to the school. Kamoshida is uh, what's up? No, go ahead, go ahead. Okay, and Kamoshida is you know he confesses his crimes because he stole his treasure or whatever, and everyone's like, "Wow, this is crazy." Uh, a bunch of uh, other schoolgirls walk up to An and they're like, "Hey, we were spreading rumors about you, and we were wrong, and that's we're that's so our sorry. fault. Like, let's yeah. be best friends now, right?" And uh, the school is kind of solved, right? But I mean, maybe this comes up later, but I, I was left very unsatisfied with 
that the kind of levers that it allowed the abuses of power, the principal, the teachers, the kind of like ways that capital worked, right? That like right, this right. would be successful. Networks of power. Yeah, right? it's the not networks as, of power. Right. It's like the reflex revenge versus like the organizing social ways of derailing yes, toxic environments. Exactly. Yes. So they were Boom. left untouched. And, and right this up, is right why... <laughs> <laughs> and this is why I think now it like, you know, in the kind of wake of the first year of the really big downfalls of the Me Too movement or the real big successes of the Me Too movement. Sorry. <laughs> the, down, the downfall of powerful men, yes. which is the successes of their, you know, victims and the people. I mean, who... I, that's a really weird, you know, kind of slippage. Yeah. Yeah. And Sorry. The that, I mean, I, I, but, but I don't think it's, I, I wonder if maybe this is where Berlant is heading. Is she's trying to make maybe a comparison from what we're seeing in something like, um, Persona 5 where it's like take down the predator right versus doing what she calls and this is sort of where the quote came from towards the end of this piece organizing social ways of derailing toxic environments along with the thrilled aha scorn or whatever else continues to see sex as a dirty appetite that other people have right um and I'm wondering if that sort of focus on, yes, let's take down, you know, and, and you know, it's it's funny because one way of talking about it is Persona 5 imagines a kind of access to a libidinal economy where we can mm-hmm. take down the sort of drives of the, um, the predator, whereas Me Too is really kind of functioning on that sort of social and political economy of like, how do we generate ways of talking about this to let people know that, hey, this is a problem, you need to do something about it, and it's going to cost you politically, monetarily, financially, so on and so forth, because we can't abide by this anymore, that those two strategies, but perhaps there's something about the strategy of the emphasis on the predator, rather than doing the work of derailing those toxic environments, which I think many activists would take into consideration is also about building the types of environments, right? Like, what would it look like to do something in the metaverse that's about building something that makes that not possible? Right. That's exactly right. And so I think that's what I was going to kind of finish up with was Sorry. like, no, no, it's totally fine. No, so it's just like, it, like make, it's going to make the point so much better Yeah, is that uh, like when you have Harvey Weinstein as that comparison, it like allows forgiveness of smaller sins, right? Because mm-hmm. this is why you now see like Matt Lauer is trying to get back on TV, like Charlie Rose once started new TV shows because they can point and say like, well, I didn't rape people for uh, 30 years, you know? They say, I just like, you know, perpetuated a culture of a systematic sexual harassment, right? And so the, what we should be doing and what we should be looking for is those more kind of like systematic ways to break that down, right? right. So exactly what you're saying, but that that's a kind of fundamental problem, I think, with that with the narrative that I've laid out of the Me Too movement is that it has like the archetypal bad mm-hmm. guy, the predator, and all these lesser problems are maybe we can forgive them, you know? And yeah. we need, I think... And, you know, loads of activists are doing this, right? Mm-hmm. right. Be more uh, systematic. I've been saying systematic a lot. But be more systematic about the way that we're uh, stopping these kinds of abuses. Okay, so I have, I have several things. I'm going to... Lay them on us. I'll, st- I'll start with the Me Too movement because I think you're, the critique is very real and I agree with it. I think we should also remember that the Me Too movement did not start in 2017. Yeah, truth. It started yeah. in 2006, I want to say. And it was started by a woman of color. Um, after she was told by a much younger girl, a minor, that she was sexually assaulted and she couldn't say anything but felt like what she what she could have said in the moment was, yeah, me too. Mm-hmm. Right. That's also happened to me. Right. So the Me Too movement has started off with a much 
not smaller scope, but... Narrower focus or... Narrower... It just didn't require a catalyst, Mm. right? Yeah. Because women who are sexually harassed or assaulted, Mm -hmm. and that's most women that I know at some point in their lives, you know, it, it makes women wonder whether or not they need a Harvey Weinstein in order to come forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Does my assault or my harassment not mean anything unless it's at the level of this overt predator? Right. Does harassment... Unless it's a King Kamoshida. Right. Yeah. yeah. If it's just a jokester, if it's just... And I put just in air quotes, you guys can't see that. <laughs> if it's just a jokester, am I... Right? Is it really rape? Right? Yeah. Which is exactly what Berlant says in the article. Yep. Yeah. What, at what point does my assault count as an assault? And that's been a big question in the Me Too movement among women, right? Especially women of color who say, well, Harvey Weinstein. I mean, why did this take off? Because Harvey Weinstein is a white man who abused white women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Famous white women. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? And then there were think pieces about how, well, women of color in the academy are still in the, not the scholarly Slippage academy, the, the film academy, <laughs> but also the scholarly academy. Yeah. The film academy. Um are still disadvantaged in ways that white women aren't. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the Me Too movement kind of narrows its focus to the experience of the white woman in American society, right? Which is its own, it's a very particular sort of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's my little bit on the Me Too movement. <laughs> so back to Persona 5, one of the things I was most disappointed in in the game is, and this ties back to what I was just talking about, the predator versus the jokester, right? Mm-hmm. In one sense, one type of sexual assault or harassment, not even sexual, also physical, is demonized very clearly, right? And that's Kamoshida. Um, I mean, it ca- there's no interpretation needed, right? It's right. The game throws it in your face. It's mm-hmm. super on the nose. And in that sense, it becomes an almost a redemption story or a revenge story, mm-hmm. right? You against Kamoshida. Mm-hmm. But weirdly... As you continue playing the game after Kamoshida has been, his treasure has been taken and he's sort of redeemed himself. Well, he like admits he's his crime. Yeah, he's confessed. He's confessed. Yeah. Whether we think that's redemption or not. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I use redemption very loosely. <laughs> yes. Um, but you as a character in the game, one, I've already talked about the power differential between you as the student and the teacher, right? The gender, how gender and positions of power, professional positions of power have a very discomforting slippage but also the character on who is like i said earlier the catalyst for you taking down kamoshida continues to be very heavily sexually objectified in the game right even in her moment of awakening when she's transformed into her persona who is a hypersexualized female figure named carmen I already told these guys that I could go on forever about <laughs> that literary illusion. Uh-huh. And also, like, she has, like, a man on a leash. Did you see that? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. It's, it's, like, in a box, yeah. Uh-huh. Right. So, one, if the persona of the character is supposed to be that character's, you know, deep down essence, it makes me wonder what the director's think on is, what purpose she's serving. Yeah, go ahead, and, and just exactly to that, like, Rutabaga... Um, is the only pers- is the only character in the game that can have multiple personas, right? Mm-hmm. And I think the on character, it, it would be a simple. There's a mechanical fix for this and a narrative fix for this. Mm-hmm. It's just that 
all the other people can have personas, multiple personas, right? If Anne could also be not a sexy cat lady, but also something else, that would that would be a step towards like she is a multiplicity just as much as Joker is. But because we get that direct like thing that like I think uh, Mona Morgana says at some point, the the persona is a direct reflection of your shadow. Your shadow self is the, your true self that you don't mm-hmm. want to show to other people. And because they, they get typed because the, the work that stereotype does in JRPGs and mm-hmm. specifically this game, we just we can't get anything more yeah. than and the sex cat, basically. And isn't it at some point, I think it's mentioned that like your persona, your like deep core persona is also like the way that you kind of break the rules of society or like it's you spirit rebel. Of rebellion. Uh-huh. Spirit of right. rebellion, right? right. Yeah. So Skull, Ryuji... His is a pirate, right? Which is kind of like an archetypal, like you're not like living with the rules of society as Captain right. Kid. Yours is this weird giant thief guy with a sword. Um, yeah, and Anne's is Anne's is a woman in control over a man. Yeah, right? I don't know. <laughs> well, like, I mean, tits are out. Yeah, she kind of looks like she's yeah. Like the extreme sexual objectification of Anne and her persona, that was just like, I expected that. That's like, ah, duh. (laughs) And this is definitely something I think would be consistent with the way that Sontag would approach this. There is like poetics of that kind of reversal in a number of different contexts. I mean, in the particulars of like, you know, the things that I study, negritude was a taking of the sort of traits of blackness and saying, all right, this is what we are going to valorize. We are going to demonize all things Western, calculative, rational, et cetera, et cetera. And in many ways, I think there's a kind of poetics of taking the um, the erotic, desire, desirous, um, lust-driven woman and saying that that is a form of power yeah. with which to challenge what we would assume to be patriarchy, that sort right. of reversal, which is, one, old as the hills. Two, <laughs> there have been a number of people who've written about, like, you know, sort of how that's sort of susceptible to a number of forms of critique, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's also the basis of... <laughs> A really terrible movie, Catwoman. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I mean, you mean the Oscar snubbed Catwoman. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, but I think that, and, and you know, it gets to that question of erotics and desire. And again, nothing subtle here. Mm-hmm. It's also very kind of flat and laden. But I think that one of the, the things that it puts on the table is if that is, because it is also, again, revenge fantasy. This is all reactive, right? And in many ways, that kind of fantasy of owning the person who owns you and oppresses you and demeaning them, mm-hmm. right, through all these sort of means, always participates in the same registers that you were demeaned against. Mm-hmm. That's one of those sort of slippy, caught, you know. In many ways, it's a, it's akin to uh, a reference that um, Berlant makes to Ralph Ellison's Change the Joke and Slip the Yoke. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, so, I just want to throw out a disclaimer that the hypersexualization, I think, in and of itself is not necessarily problematic. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's problematic because it caters to the male gaze specifically, right? right? That's right. what makes it problematic. The fact that her persona is this woman who's very confident in her sexuality and, you know, clearly is presented as somebody who enjoys sex, that's not problematic. What's problematic is the dissonance between on in the real world as somebody who throughout the game is resistant to and visibly discomfort made dis- uncomfortable by advances by men that her metaverse self mm. is this very 
right. sexually powerful woman, yeah, right? Yeah. And and that's like a deep male fantasy, right? That absolutely. like this like repressed woman like actually is really like a sexual be, you know being, right? And mm-hmm. like you just have to understand their deep kind of deep seated sexuality. Agree. Yeah. I'd yeah. also say that the fact that later episodes or later sort of dungeons feature her having to dress up in a bunch of clothes and strip for somebody etc mm-hmm. etc you know it'd be one thing if the game were to try to interrogate those two things and have a conversation it's like yes like you are a sexual object to a number of men mm-hmm. but you also have sexual agency yeah. what does it mean right. to terry that maybe those things can be in conversation maybe those things don't have to be yeah. in conflict Exclusive. i don't think the game does right. it no yeah. not right. at all exactly. it just makes right. those moments inherently exploitative yeah. when they don't need to be exactly no. right? it's an it's a missed opportunity really it is it's and that's one of the things i was most disappointed by in the mm-hmm. game is because it confronts sexual harassment so overtly and yeah. so immediately mm-hmm. there's even like an, a moment like right after kamashita's castle that's kind of setting up the second palace where uh, you're be uh, An thinks that she's being like stalked by someone, and you don't really know. And she keeps being like, "Oh, there he is again." And Ryuji says something like, "Oh, women, you know, like what are you gonna do?" And I was like, <laughs> "Bruh, like you were just in this metaverse place yeah. where you assassinated people, and she was lighting people on fire. Like, can we trust her like a little bit to like know yeah. what's going on?" Yeah, yeah, right. Just to yeah, touch one thing, I. I I struggle to say it's a game that addresses sexual assault um, consciously. Like, mm-hmm. it touches on it. It invokes it. Uh, but I don't know that it has – well, it definitely has things to say about it. I don't know if it has the things that were well wrought. And perhaps camp can't. Right. Right. right? Maybe that's the limits of camp. Right. Yeah. So. But it's also a great critique – unintentional critique, right? Because I'm doing the critiquing and this was written by men who, okay, by the way, fun fact, between Persona 3 and Persona or between Persona 4 and Persona 5 the director and the art director of uh, the games um, wrote and directed a sex crime thriller film, by the way so I'm going to throw that out there Okay. I think it doesn't surprise me at all that that's something that happened (laughs) but I think I mean, I think what Persona 5 does with its handling of women and assault and harassment is exactly what Berlant is talking about in her piece, right? We mm-hmm. have the predator who's vilified, and then we have a protagonist who's taking advantage of vulnerable women in positions of power, mm-hmm. uh, totally immune to or at least complicit with the objectification and use of women in his own party, for various ends, right? And Ryuji kind of serves as this jokester, bro, sidekick type figure, which is supposed to make us feel okay with him ogling the breasts of the women in his party. It's unclear, right? But so at what point does the jokester become the predator? Right. Right. I think that's what Berlant is getting, one of the many things mm-hmm. that Berlant is getting at in her piece. And it's, it's clear that the director and the writer of the game, they, this all-male team, themselves have not realized that there is this slippage. Right. Right? That you don't have to be a predator to be somebody who's sexually harassing women. Right. Right? In fact, it's overt throughout the game. Absolutely. Yeah. And so this shines some light on it, whether inten- un- intentionally or unintentionally, it shines some light on it. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. All right. Okay. okay. I think that's about that's it. all for me. Yeah. What we've got today. Um, thank you once again, Sabine, for joining us. Of course, our it was first, wonderful our first repeat guest. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Yes, that's you. Yeah. 
fun. Well, I'm a regular now, guys, by the way. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah, yeah. So This is a four-person podcast. Yeah. yeah, 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 exactly. Did you know? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for inviting me. This was of course. awesome and a really important topic. I'd like to give a special thanks uh, to the Curb Center for Art, Enterprise, and Public Policy at Vanderbilt University for providing support, equipment, space, time, et cetera, especially Professor Jay Clayton, uh, to the Haystack Program for helping make this project possible, to Visager uh, for the use of their freely available song, The Plateau at Night, our intro and outro song, to our fabulous patron supporters, but especially our distinguished colleague, Carol R. Uh, And for those of you who have not joined the Patreon yet, please do so. Consider it like a tip jar. Yeah. So if if you like what we're doing, if you want us to keep going, visit uh, patreon.com backslash scholars at play. There are various levels and some of them will get you a mention, just like Carol R. on the yes. podcast. You also have access to our Discord channel, yep. where you can talk to the Hang scholars out. themselves. <laughs> uh, if you have any questions, thoughts, comments, send them to scholarsatplaypodcast at gmail.com. Or you can reach us on Twitter at Derek. Uh, at digital underscore Derek. Kyle. I'm at E underscore Kyle underscore Romero. Sabine. I still don't have a Twitter. (laughs) I've written in the show notes questions for Sabine. Think really, really hard about them and then sort of send that out into the world energy. You can also find her running through the metaverse uh, and her spirit of rebellion is quite awesome and also terrifying. She might kill you, but you know, that's the risk. So if you have questions, think about them hard because there might be a very steep price for, for asking them. You better really uh, want to know. If <laughs> if people actually do have questions for you, could they send send them to scholars at playpodcast at gmail.com? Absolutely. Yeah. And, yeah. We'll, and we'll pass them along to Sabine and she will happily, I imagine, address them. Well, I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll address them. <laughs> they will be addressed. They, they will, will be addressed. Yes, yeah. In the passive. You can find me, as usual, at uh, Black Socrates. Thank you all for listening. God bless you. Good night. See you soon. Bye, guys. Bye.